Welcome to another episode of The Real Estate of Things. I'm Nate Tronfio with Lean One Capital. Today we have Dr. Adam Gower going deep into the road of capital raising, the good, the bad, and certainly a little bit of the ugly that we're seeing in the market and how syndicators and how even investors should be looking at things. So let's jump right in. You're listening to The Real Estate of Things podcast. Adam, I'm excited to dive into all things money, but let's talk in today's market. What's going on with capital raising? What are some of the trends that you're seeing right now? All right, fine. So, you know, the world has changed, as you well know, Nate. Interest rates have gone up. Capital calls are becoming more frequent from sponsors that took on variable rate debt and are now uh, facing low maturities, increased interest, increased insurance rates flattening rents against projections, et cetera, et cetera. We all, we all know the story. In fact, I hate to do this too, but we're going to date stamp this. We're at the end of September 2023. Who knows what's going to happen You know, next month or the month after. So what's happening is, as far as capital formation, not only are sponsors uh, starting to try and shore up issues that they're having, but there is a consistent flow of, of sponsors who are either Best case scenario, stopping distributions. Worst case scenario is punching out capital calls. And so consequently, you've got this new world of passive investors, call them accredited investors, or even more accurately, limited partners, LPs, who are for the first time investing in commercial real estate. And during that experience, unfortunately for them and for everybody involved, the first time realizing it ain't a walk in the park. And so when it comes to raising capital, one of the things that capital raises, one of the challenges that uh, sponsors are having is how to, first of all, deal with the inevitability that the audience that they're appealing to is starting to feel some pain. That's number one. And also, how are they ensuring that any capital calls that they do have are successful? So the language of capital raising has shifted fundamentally, from where it was 18 months ago, where you could say, invest in real estate, great for diversification, you know, stable, not as volatile as the stock market, long-term, blah, blah, blah. You, you know, it's kind of the, the Vegas thing you can never lose. Suddenly, reality has hit the market. So you got to adjust your language and your communications to suit what investors are thinking about. And what they're thinking about today is very, very different than what they were thinking about 12 or 18 months ago. So break down that you know communication language that if a sponsor operator is running into challenges and they're not hitting their performance and business plans, how do you go about those conversations and, and what language are you typically seeing people use there? Mate, I'm really glad you asked. And I can't see my entire screen. I can't see what you can see, but this entire board behind me is the answer to that question. <laughs> so, but I will try and keep it brief. In short, Nate, seriously, I've been through this. I started in this business. I'm not even I don't even want to tell you I started in 1982 because I know I don't look remotely close to being old enough to go that far, but I did, and I do. So I've been through a couple of major downturns. I know exactly what happens. I, I worked for a sponsor who completely failed in the 1980s. Unfortunately, I lost everything. And then I went through the global financial crisis. So that was the savings and loan cycle. Then I went through the global financial crisis, fortunately selling out, returning significant returns to my capital, to all of my investors, 
right before the music stopped. So they saw me as a kind of as a genius. Most of them did. Others weren't so happy for whatever wacky reasons they had. And then I went into dealing with several billion dollars of non-performing commercial real estate collateralized loans for a major bank and then for one of the top private equity real estate funds in the world. And the number one mistake, this by the way, this is a very long way to get in an answer to you, but the number one mistake that sponsors do is they stop communicating. That's the mistake. How do you communicate? Communicate. And what typically happens is that you... And, you know, serious, I, I don't mean to, I don't mean to, you know, seem to be trivializing this at all. It is the number one most important thing to do. What happens is that sponsors immediately think, that, first of all, they don't want to, they don't want to portray, especially first time sponsors. Sponsors have not been through a downturn before. In other words, anybody that has entered this industry as a syndicator for in the last 10 years, right? Basically, I've never seen anything, even more, actually. I mean, 2012, it was already pulling out. You go about 10, 12 years, really. Actually, no, it would be less because 2012 was when the Jobs Act passed and general solicitation, basically the last 10 years. So the instinct is to think, well, I've spent my entire life raising money for all these deals that I'm in, portraying this positive persona and this positive attitude uh, to commercial real estate investing. And now, hell, my revenue is 80% of what I owe on debt alone. I can't do the upgrades, I thought. I'm behind on payments to contractors. The bank is starting to knock on the door. I've got a maturity coming up, et cetera, et cetera. Interest rates have quadrupled, et cetera, et cetera. Their instinct is to shut down and not to communicate with investors because you don't want to be, this is like psychology, seriously. I'm actually, my degree, my undergraduate degree was political psychology. So I actually love psychology. And so the instinct is to shut down because you want to, number one, continue to portray this positive view on the world. And secondly, because you think that by demonstrating any kind of weakness, it's going to weaken your ability to raise money again. And that might mean to raise money for a capital call because you need it. You got to buy a new rate cap or whatever it happens to be, or for the next deal that you can't show weakness. Well, the problem with that is that what you end up extending and extending, and extending actual communication to the point when it's too late. And when it's too late is all right, you know, the bank is breathing down your neck and you've got to cash in, refi this thing on Friday or you're going to lose it, right? The bank has no more negotiations or you're going to lose it. And so you end up sending an email and, Nate, I'm not kidding. I've actually seen one of these. Literally, some of the passive investors sent me an email that they got from their sponsor that basically said, the business plan failed. We figured out how to solve the problem. We're going to double the size of the project. You know what that is? That is digging your way out of a hole. <laughs> Remember that basically, digging your way out of a hole. We're going to double the size of the project. According to clause 3.0.1, you owe us 50%. That's the capital core clause. And we need it by Friday. And if you don't send it to us, you're going to be diluted by 30%. Here are the wiring instructions. And literally, that was literally the email. And they had not communicated at all with their investors for six months. 
So the answer to your question is, you have to be honest, you have to be forthright, you have to be transparent. You're inevitably doing your absolute best to figure out a solution around a situation that was completely out of your control. So you're looking at various options. You're talking to the bank. You're negotiating a, an extension with the bank of some sort. You're looking at maybe rescue capital. You're looking at the different options that you have for a new rate cap. Whatever it is, you're working on a range of options, dealing with insurance companies. Whatever it is, you're dealing with a range of options. Share that with your investors. Give them regular updates about what you're doing. Do not fear. Open, transparent communication. It's important. And I am not a doctor or a psychologist, but you know, when there is no communication, then that leaves the other end of the inside to, to make up their own story. And especially if you're trying to jam something down somebody's throat, which is never the right way to do business from my perspective, it just makes things way worse. Because at the end of the day, we're also all emotional human beings too. And so we will take facts and turn it into our own conclusions and assumptions. I got to ask you this question. Because, you know, I'm not going to say you're old, you're wise, and you've seen a couple of cycles. So, you know, uh, just because a syndicator, let's call it a fairly experienced syndicator, now has a business plan that's flawed and has issues and they're working on solutions, they start to communicate. Does that mean they're not a good operator? No, it doesn't. Because the real estate is cyclical and everybody gets hurt. Everybody gets hurt during a downturn. Some get more hurt than others, right? And <laughs> if you've been through it before, then you will have typically underwritten your assumptions, but you will have underwritten assumptions that are prudent and defensive against the unexpected, that you expect the unexpected. You expect sure. there will be a downturn. You don't know what it's going to look like, but you don't want to go through losing a project Again, and so you underwrite to less debt, uh, more conservative rent growth projections, maybe lower exit caps uh, or higher exit caps, lower values than you might have normally done. You stress test your underwriting because you've been through a downturn and you know that it can happen. And you know also that if you survive a downturn, you will come out much stronger than you were going in, even if you do have some losses or some declines in projections going in. The problem with that is that if you don't have the experience, what's going to happen is that you become hyper-competitive. I'll give you an example. Whisper price on a deal of 10 million. Just pulling this out of my head. If you are able to borrow, and you're a bridge lender, so I know you've been seeing this. So you've got a $10 million whisper price on a deal, but you're able to offer more flexible terms to a borrower than, the, than agency debt. So you're able to be, you can say, you know, we want a one-year rate cap instead of a two-year. And then they come back and they say, all right, now we can increase the price. So they start competing with other people that are taking on bridge debt. And the price goes up and suddenly you're still lending 80%. Basically, it's a race to bottom. I'm not saying it's you, but other bridge lenders. It's a race to the bottom. Prices go up, terms come down, underwriting gets laxer. And now you're in a deal that because you've not had the experience of going through a downturn you overpaid for and have taken on too much debt. Yep. Now, that doesn't make you a bad sponsor. All that makes you is 
a sponsor without experience. <laughs> and so what's going to happen right now is that there will be a flushing out of sponsors who will learn the hard way. But to get back to communication, that's why you've got to communicate. Real estate is a long-term game. I don't care how you've been marketing your deals. For the last 10 years, there's you know, diversification and tax breaks and blah, blah, all this good, you know, rosy picture. It doesn't matter. You've got to think of it long-term, even if you can't hit your projections. And even if you lose a deal, if you communicate effectively with your investors, with your passive investors, with your LPs, and you explain what happened, what's going to happen is on the uptick, which also is inevitable, they will invest with you again. Because they will understand that you're now under, your underwriting now is hardened by hard experience. You're not going to make the same mistakes. And when you project a 12% IRR instead of the 25s that you were so desperately trying to project to compete with everybody else in the last cycle, they know you're going to survive. You're not going to lose their money this time. Now, it's uh, some great feedback. And, you know, I, th I think it is the unfortunate reality that, you know, rising tides raise all ships. But when the tide goes out, you find out whose pants were down. And it doesn't mean that you can't pull your pants back up or swim through it, you know. And so it's interesting perspective. And I just appreciate how transparent you are in it. And it, it's just, especially as a lender, I uh, had, to, had to ask that question. So at some point here soon, I'm going to roll reversal. You're going to become the host of the real estate of things and ask me anything you want. Uh, which I think is going to be fun. But before that, let's do a little bit of role reversal on what, you know, just asked you there was, so for LP investors, what should they be looking at? Because there's still a lot of great investment opportunities in real estate, you know, so what are LP investors looking for now? And how would you go about that? <laughs> yes, that is interesting, isn't it? So what are LPs looking at? Okay. So the sponsors, the GPs that are out there looking for deals, there is one word at the moment that is dominating all decision-making. Patience. Patient. Be patient. The market has not hit bottom. It has a long way to go. So don't rush in. You've got to be patient. So I would say the same thing of LPs. <laughs> Just be patient. Sure. Look, the fact is this, that the, the market has to reset the entire market has to reset pricing, period. That's what has to happen. And at the moment, prices and sellers uh, and operators are still locked into yesterday's pricing. With interest rates now north of 7%, cap rates have to go up. And as cap rates go up and meet those baseline interest rates or debt levels, equity is being wiped out. And so pricing has to reset. As soon as you start seeing pricing reset, that's bottom. And what that means is that you can start to underwrite for a slow climb out of the recession. So if you can demonstrate the pricing that you're getting on an acquisition does make sense under these new reset assumptions of new interest rates, new rent growths, new insurance rates, new costs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, then you, and you're, and you're looking forward that's when you can start to buy. But the GPs that I'm working with are not seeing that yet. I'm looking at a lot of deals at the moment. I have not seen anything that comes remotely close to making sense. And so I would say that what you should be looking at right now is just be patient. I know that's not the answer you want to hear, but you got to be patient. No, it's 
it's the real real estate answer. I mean, you, you said it earlier too. I mean, this this can be a short game for people if you really think you can flip properties. Now's probably not the time where you can do that confidently or easily unless you're truly buying at a deep discount. But to your point, I haven't seen anywhere near enough price capitulation between buyers and sellers. And so you got to have a long-term investment horizon. And it's harder to do with where it is and rents flattening, as you said. So you talked earlier a little bit about capital calls. Have you seen a wave of it? Is the wave building up? You know, t- talk to me about the called severity of that. Yes. So this whole thing here is actually uh, part of a book that I've, I'm writing, almost done, Capital Calls and Rescue Capital, I think I'm going to call it. Cool. The other thought was eat a frog for breakfast or get eaten by a shark for lunch, <laughs> uh, which means you got to suck it up or you're going to get eaten up, basically. Yep. So, uh, but I haven't quite decided. So hopefully I'm a bit behind on it. Hopefully this week or next, I'll have that finished. Okay. So this is what LPs typically see. And this is what, uh, and so this, this the, the book is, is part of a training program. So I really want to help. I've been through this. This is a disaster for a lot of people. It's going to be a real struggle. I want to help people pull through it effectively. So the first thing that happens if the sponsor is not effective is uh, they stop communicating. So the first sign from an LP is crickets. (laughs) It's actually written on the border somewhere. Crickets. They get crickets. They stop hearing out. They don't get responses to questions. The next thing that happens is distribution stop. That is a sign of really serious problems like there's something really bad going on. So you want to, an LP wants to be looking for exceptionally good, candid, transparent communication from their sponsor all the way through. So that's kind of a baseline. Then what happens is the sponsor's doing his or her job properly. They will have a capital call. They will say, look, we're short of capital for these reasons. They will have educated. This is what I call real estate syndication education 2.0. 2.0. We just had 1.0. What's the IRR? How do you save taxes? Right? What's diversification? What's multifamily? What's office? What's data center? What's self-storage, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. This is real estate education 2.0. And that is okay. This is what happens when the market turns on you. So you got now sponsors need to be educating their investors on, on the language of a downturn. So that when they do have a capital call, they have educated their investors to understand, we're doing our best. This is why we think this is a good decision for you. It's up to you to make that decision. As far as numbers, which is actually what I thought you asked, I think actually was the basis of your first question, like what kind of percentages? And I did ask you a little teaser question before we started, and you did give me a rather surprising answer because most of the bridge lenders that I've been speaking to, or actually the brokers who have been providing bridge debt, I should say more accurately, and the securities attorneys that I've also been talking to are saying that of the newcomer sponsors, i.e. the last 10 years, people that have not been through it before, fully 80 to 90% are facing severe cash shortages right now. And that that wave is gonna is already hitting. We get sometimes investors call us and say, you know, our deal I invested in, the guy's gone totally quiet. Can you do help us out? And I call them, say, hey, well, I'm getting calls from your investors. Maybe we can help you. I can certainly help you in communications and how to do that, not to worry about it, how to do that effectively, because now you've got to be a capital raiser in a different world altogether. 
Yep. But we can also provide capital, just as a side note. So we're able to come in and help. And also, we help sponsors maximize the amount that they can raise in a capital call from existing investors. It's just a different kind of capital formation than it was during a bull market. It is during a bear market. So my my very long way of answering your very short question, I could have given you a short answer, 80 to 90% so far of those who are new to the industry, i.e. within the last 10 years, from what I'm hearing, are facing severe cash shortages. And that's... Uh... That is not good. <laughs> now, there's also um, that you specifically said that that is new investors, and that has been a big premise of yours. And as a lender, it's a core belief and practice of ours, a proof of execution. If you've done it before, you're, you're more likely to do it again. So I think let's take that time in this show, one of my first times here doing this, for sort of a little bit of role reversal. What might you want to ask me as the now new host for a couple of minutes at the least of the real estate of things? I really appreciate it. All right. So I, I'm actually really drilling down on this. I think that, I don't know if you've read the big short, Michael Lewis's big short about the story of Mike Perry and how he underwrote it. I actually think the exact same thing is playing out now in commercial real estate as happened then in residential real estate. So in that kind of context. Right. So you are, so I really, really want to learn here. Uh, so you're a, a multifamily bridge lender financed by a REIT. So how does that work? Are you a balance sheet lender? Mm-hmm. Yep. Balance sheet. So the way that works, and this is a, a question, is that you will raise your own equity and then the REIT provides a proportion of that. Is that right? Actually, our equity comes from the REIT and then all of the earnings spit into and through to our parent company, REIT, which gets distributed out to stakeholders who own publicly traded stock. Ah, interesting. Okay. So they provide 100% of the debt. We are owned 100% by a publicly traded REIT. Okay. They didn't give us an equity investment into our business. They own us. They saw enough value in, in the credits that we produce that provide enough yield that hit their bogeys and return matrices for them to produce out to their stakeholders as, as a publicly traded company. I see. Interesting. Okay. Other bridge lenders, again, just to situate you properly. Yep. Other bridge lenders are different. They'll go out, they will they will raise from equity partners, let's say 250 million, and then they'll go to the JPMs of this world who will bring in 750. So they got a billion dollars. They'll then deploy that. Correct. Create a CLO, collateralized loan obligation, and then sell that on to investors. Is, is that is that? Yeah, so absolutely. So your institutional is sort of, as you call it, the A piece. You know, they get money back first. And then your originating lender who had the equity infusion from institutional is the B piece. And then they do that to fund up. They fund loans up to a critical mass until you have enough critical mass, enough loan volume to then sell off, you know, essentially you call it like bonds, which is something that we do. We don't operate fully in the commercial loan obligation realm. It's a more of a quasi residential securitization, but functionally at the end of the day, for those of you that aren't nerding out on this type of stuff, it's very comparable and almost the same. Okay. So they take these CL, again, I'm, I'm going to stop this line of questions. I just want, I'm just repeating what I'm learning to make sure I'm understanding it properly. So that bridge lender will then take all those loans, create a CLO that will then be rated by the rating agencies all the way from AAA down to B, and then they sell that off. Correct. Right? So it's okay. All right. So my first question is, I'm going to ask you again. I am hearing from mortgage brokers who have been, first of all, specializing in bridge, 
but are reporting that Bridge took over completely from agency debt at the beginning of 2021. It was like there was this shift Correct. to Bridge. And that what happened was because lending on Bridge loans is that much less stringent, requirements so much less stringent than they are on agency debt, it created a, he called it a race to the bottom where pricing was going up because debt was becoming cheaper, leverage was still high, and lenders were paying more than, significantly more than brokers had even estimated a deal could be worth. Yeah. And so, you know, I think just even a little bit more from my perspective, going back to that time frame and, you know, up until it was really about Q3 of this last year, where those of us on the lending side call it more of a, like, I call it specifically sort of, we ran into a little bit of the frozen tundra in capital markets where a lot of these deals weren't able to be made. And those that didn't have dry powder and access to other capital through leverage facilities, warehouse facilities, and things of that nature couldn't continue to move. Things changed dramatically, as you pointed. But back in the day, but you know, post-pandemic, still very recent, up until this freezing in the capital markets, or you know, the differential of pricing because rates were so low in all realms between agency and bridge was fairly narrow gap. Now that gap has widened out because there's more perceived risk in the market, and therefore bridge is always going to be more of a risky product than a permanent financing product. Number one. Number two, to your point, bridge lenders were very easily able to go up higher in the capital stack and provide 80% of cost was at one time a very common stay. And then a lot of us were able to even go up to 85% because at the same time, you could argue that deals would pencil. Now, you know, look, you would attest, I've never seen a pro forma that didn't look good. Uh, you know, it's pretty easy to manipulate, you know, whether it's a, a higher increase in income and a lower increase in expenses or, oh, look at how great this deal is when I just, cap rates are going to continue to compress and you're just sort of riding that wave. But at the end of the day, even with prudent underwriting, deals were penciling out with what we knew at that point in time. And so therein lied exactly what you said. What happened is if we give more buying power, more leverage, you can pay more for a property. And at the same time, debt's always cheaper than equity in most markets. And so it was easier. Why wouldn't I take more debt? And I have confidence to execute. I've either done it before. I haven't done it before. But look how easy it is. It's all sunshine and rainbows investing in commercial real estate. Right. And the other thing is, so you talked about how much? $2 billion in the last couple of years? Like 22 and... We did. I mean, it's, since we're a publicly traded company, we did two point, or a little under $2.3 billion in single family and multifamily bridge and a little bit of single-family perm debt last year, 2022. Okay. So my interest is only in multifamily. Yep. What proportion of that was uh, floating rate? It was sort of a, a value proposition of us is we actually have always offered fixed rate bridge debt. So we essentially, you're locked in for the whole duration of the term. We're typically a two-year note, sometimes three-year note, depending on business plan and sponsor and pricing and things of that nature. But we have we've been fortunate and we've seen good performance thus far with our multifamily paper and product just because we didn't have to implement people buying rate caps and it didn't have to deal with people dealing with increasing rates because it was floating now I'll also say you know our biggest year multifamily originations was 2022 and by definition a two-year term even puts january originations out a little bit so we haven't seen you know the maturation of, of our portfolio in multifamily although we're seeing plenty of it hit just not the bulk of what we've done and something that you may be you know, asking, and I'm sure you know, as it's been over the news throughout this entire year, is 2023 is the year of highest commercial maturities ever. And so that's something that we're very much seeing because we're still very active in the bridge space. And there's been a lot of interesting changes of our peer set, different sizes and shapes of peer sets and what they are and aren't doing 
as far as deploying capital right now. But, you know, there's technically a lot of opportunity, but, you know, it's a little bit inverted from the true residential QM, non-QM lending where that's heavy purchase. Right now, you know, you're probably three out of four requests is some form of a refi recap. And, you know, by all means, you can ask any next question you want there. <laughs> well, uh, so actually, uh, just a quick question. 2021, how much lending did you do? Uh, I think it was one six, one seven. One point okay. So one point seven. Okay. So all of that 2021 and 2022 lending, two years fixed, is all coming due. It's all coming due now. Yep. So to what extent do you have just be straightforward? To, to what extent do you have eyes in on those loans? They're still balance sheet, right? You still own these loans. You know. Mm-hmm. So to what extent do you have eyes into actually how they are performing against pro forma because they're going to be coming up for they're going to be coming up to maturity now yep and over the next 12 months at very significantly higher refinance rates presumably actually what are those rates like approximately what did they go in at fixed and what are they looking at so we were last year sort of our floor rate we were specifically offering i think it was about 575 that's just flat note rate. You know, that's not a spread over an index. Right now, we're currently, as you dated the episode, high nines to low to mid tens common, you know, so I mean, you're 2x essentially, cost of capital, cost of debt. That's a big change. We do allow for extensions on our bridge notes. Typically, it's one year extension. But you know, just as our cost of capital has raised, that has to be passed along. And so, you know, we're having those conversations with sponsors. And, you know, as far as, you know, we all know what's coming, although candidly, you know, we and I specifically thought coming into January that we would be deep in the throes of it already. So we've been preparing as much as possible, which for us as a lender is really diving deep into our asset management practices and ensuring that we're collecting everything on a quarterly basis and trying our best to analyze it, spreading it back to the original underwrites. You know, to your question on how many business plans have hit pro forma? It's probably less than more, but it's it's really more about the variation of how much they are hitting or missing. But I think at the same time, you know, there's still this whole rising tides raise all ships. And so even with missing in your pro forma, you've seen cap rates continue to compress. And we've lent in a lot of secondary and some tertiary markets, and those markets are still performing well. What it's translated to is that most people that originally were taking the bridge note to then get agency and hold them and deliver some portion of return of capital to their original investors or themselves and eventually hit, you know, over a four or five year or seven year period IRR, which I always saw the high teens. But, you know, of course, everybody wants higher. So 20s, wherever they were targeting, a lot of people are now having just to make the decision to just liquidate and sell and return capital, either simply return or you know, just with lower lower returns, or some of them without returning capital, of course. And and there's obviously its fair share of stuff that just truly ends up not performing, you know. But just like you said, when uh, with LP investors, we as a lender, as we try our best to communicate frequently, we have covenants around quarterly financial collections. You know, if borrowers aren't communicating with us, our antennas go up, and that's a red flag. And so my advice out, same as you said, is you know your deals going good, bad, or indifferent. You know, when your lender's calling on you for an update because you own financials or you're getting six months, three months away from maturity, communicate, be transparent. You know, there's not many to any high realm of lenders out there that were loan to own shops in these last couple of years because why would, you know, I mean, people would have loved to own assets, but at the end of the day, we make just as much yield on, on the credit side of the business. So, 
that's the same advice that you gave. I would give to borrowers as well is make sure you are in communication because we all want this to work out well, you know, even though it is going to be a little choppy. It's interesting to say that as a lender. So I came into East West Bank in 2007 and they'd done, I don't know how many billions of commercial real estate collateralized lending. My job was to uh, sell notes. <laughs> Actually, I was a real estate guy, so non-performing loans and to uh, minimize losses, basically. And so what I learned in that experience, and actually also during the after the uh, savings and loan crisis, that's the early 90s. And this is really, please, if you're a sponsor facing challenges right now, there's nothing else to listen to. This is it. If you do the right thing during a downturn, if you communicate with your lender and with your investors, you will do well afterwards. If you do not, you will might as well go and find a J-O-B because <laughs> you will never do this again. You have to communicate even bad news. So let me ask you a couple of questions, actually, Nate, if you don't mind. For the extensions that you are beginning to look at, just generically, so if you do a one-year extension, are you resetting the rate and allowing the delta between the 5.5 and the 10, let's call it, to be deferred and added to the principal? How are you structuring that? Typically not. You're resetting at the higher level, are you, for an extra year? C correct. Yeah. And so that may force or has forced some borrowers to go out and have to make capital calls. And so, you know, it's important is is underwritten in a lot of bridge deals and agency deals, you know, reserves is, is a real thing. And so sometimes people have to pull out of pocket to do it. Although, you know, those that have executed or even moderately executed, there has been pretty sizable rent increases from 2020 plus even before that, even 2021 plus, and even some of early 2022, although it's, as you said, flatlined a little bit. And so a lot of times as people, even if they didn't execute 100% of the business plan, they're still driving in higher cash flow than they were anticipating and able to support it. And at the same time, you know, others, it really accelerates the plan on what they need to do to, you know, further take on permanent debt or liquidate the asset. Are you seeing capital calls being uh, successful? <sighs> It's hard for me to say because on the credit side, we don't get overly involved on the equity, but I can't say I've seen a ton be successful on loans that we're working through just because of, you know, there hasn't been a ton of them yet, candidly, Adam. So what I can say is that on the inflow of deals that we see, which is a lot, there are plenty of bridge lenders that just their current credit box is acquisition only. I'll only finance an acquisition. We're not that. Of course, we're way more conservative on a, a refi recap than we would be on an acquisition. You know, what, what ends up penciling out a lot of times is a uh, cash in refi. And our challenge is, and you referenced it earlier, our challenge is typically, you know, when you see a bridge loan to a bridge loan, that means there's some realm of failed business plan. And the toughest thing for us to underwrite in today's world, given some of these scenarios, there's plenty of good ones. You know, there's plenty of ones where Especially we see a ton of um, lease ups on new product. I mean, there's a lot of new product that's coming to market still and, you know, just got CO and they need a bridge lender for timing bridge to lease up the property. Those are great plays. We love that. And then there's plenty of ones that, you know, they just didn't fully hit the business plan. And our job is to identify, did they just completely fail or and where are they at in the business plan? I mean, you know, if you had a two year note and you're 25, 50 percent of the way through, it's most of the time not going to be something for us. But is if you're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, you're 75, 80, 90 percent more so of the way through the business plan, then that's that's where we'll take a good look at it. And usually at that point, properties are close to stabilized or stabilized and just need to be seasoned. 
you know, and they're they're spitting off enough cash flow to support our bridge note. And are you seeing much uh, rescue capital, third party, like pref equity slugs coming in to help sponsors out? You have to underwrite those folk directly because typically they want the potential of total control. Correct. We don't, you know, and so we don't typically underwrite that unless it's MES, especially MES structured as debt. Pref equity, you don't? Not really. I mean, it's we get all the docs, we see PPMs and things of that nature. But it's really more just cash flow analysis on the asset itself, and it's on the sponsor to be responsible for you know what they need to do with the cash flow and returns or what they're doing in lieu of that. You know what I can tell you, being very friendly with a number of lenders and originators on the agency side, a big focus of a lot of what was bridge originators that also did agency. There's not a lot of bridge to write right now because it's hard for stuff to pencil out, and so they're focused on the agency take out of bridge notes in its agency and mess. And so that is a, a fairly common focus, depending on the different types of lenders out there that are looking to slap mess on top of agency to pay off their original bridge notes. So they're now remaining with the mess piece on top of agency debt. Ah, so let me just say that back to you and to make sure I heard you correctly. I, my mind was drifting as I was trying to focus on what you were saying. But I think you said, that borrowers that took out bridge debt are replacing their bridge debt with agency plus MES. Yeah, and you certainly can call that rescue capital. We don't place MES. We don't do anything second positions. We'll only do first position, first trustee notes. But there are lenders out there that know that you know they need to make sure that they don't have a large book of non-performing loans for somebody to work out or sell. And so in order to do that, they'll take a MES piece and write the agency, which is originally... They were expecting 75 to 80% in agency debt, and now they're getting high 60s, and they need to bring in another slug of 5 to 7, 5 to 10%. Fascinating. Yeah, one of the, uh, well, look, we've gone super long. You said 30 minutes. So let's wrap up that. I could go on forever, but you've been very helpful. Thank you. Yeah, so I just I appreciate you putting me on the hot seat. So what I just, you've given a lot of advice here, you know, but I'd love for you to pick your brain on one last piece for responsor operators is again, there are good deals out there, but as they, as somebody goes about finding new deals, you know, what's your last piece of advice for raising capital and being prudent in today's market? I would say be really conservative on your underwriting. You talked about having a pro forma. You never saw a pro forma that looked bad. Take your pro forma and create three versions of it. Not the one for investors, the one for the bank and the one for you. What I mean is stress test your pro forma. And that means a best case, worst case, and a most likely case scenario for your spreadsheet. That would be my advice. And really stress test it hard. Use the hardest assumptions that you possibly can and make sure that you can survive the worst case scenario. If your pro forma can survive the worst case scenario, do the deal. And if it cannot, do not do the deal. Don't do it, right? That would be my advice. And hope for the best. Yes, and uh, go back to your one word because you had me at the edge of my seat when you said there's one word and yet a, a small pause is patience. Patient capital can be smart capital, especially now. So, Adam, I just appreciate you not only sharing, but doing a little role reversal here with me, man. And just thank you so much for adding a ton of value to the Real Estate of Things audience. Yeah, I really enjoyed the call. And I really appreciate you allowing me to reciprocate. But it's been a really interesting conversation. Thanks, Nate. Awesome. We'll have to bring you back. We'll see what's on the other side of uh, some of what we're dealing with here. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, I mean, anytime. 
yeah, it's, it's things are moving very quickly. It's a very cool market to be in. Exactly. Awesome. Are you a real estate investor looking for the right lender that can finance all your deals and help you scale? Lima One Capital has the best suite of loan products in the industry bar none. Whether that's fix and flips, fix and holds, building new construction, or buying rental properties, they have incredible financing solutions for it all. A reliable, common sense lender is one of the most important parts of your investment team. And that's exactly what you get with Lima One. Let Lima One Capital show you how they've helped thousands of real estate investors scale and increase their wealth. Check out LimaOne.com or call 800-259-0595 to speak with a consultant in preparation for your next project. Thank you for joining us today on the Real Estate of Things podcast. Subscribe and tune in weekly for new content from the industry's best while we continue to unpack the nuances of this dynamic market. Follow us across social media for additional insights and analysis on the topics covered in each episode. And remember to rate, review, and share the show.